In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the Holy Scriptures and in Christendom, there are many mysteries that God gives to us. When we use that word mystery, we're not referring to something of which we know nothing about. Rather, we're referring to something that we recognize we won't ever be able to fully comprehend, fully wrap our minds around. We can ever grow in learning more and more about a given mystery of the faith and never plumb the depths. For example, the greatest of all of these theological mysteries, just last week, Holy Trinity Sunday, that God is one and yet three. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second only to this, that God could become man, the infinite become finite, he who knows all things and he who grows in wisdom and stature, not two he's, but one he, one Christ. And there are other mysteries still of different kind, Mysteries of perception, where there is more than meets the eye. For example, that behind common water, God would be working to wash away sins and claim us as his own everlasting children. Or as we will experience in a few moments today, that underneath common bread and common wine, our Lord Jesus would give us his true body and blood to eat and drink for the full and free forgiveness of all our sins. There are other lesser mysteries in the Holy Scriptures as well. Why are some saved and not others? Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper while the godly seem to suffer? Indeed, we have one such meditation having to do with that very question in our gospel text today. When we see the wealthy of our age and we see the ways in which they use their money, so frequently we think, I would use it for good. Not all that different from how so many viewed the ring of power in Tolkien's novel, The Lord of the Rings. Why, we could use it for good. Jesus would say, be careful what you wish for. What does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world with all its wealth and yet lose his soul? We don't know if this tale of the rich man and Lazarus is in fact a parable. Most people think it is, although Jesus uses no such language. It may in fact be a historical event. But we see a rich man who is clothed in fine purple and the nicest of linens, who feasts sumptuously every day, not nearly as clear in English as it is in the original, that he wears fine purple clothing every single day. Purple is the color of extreme wealth. This is an ostentatious display 
of his wealth. As a Jewish man, perhaps part of that display is, look how good I am with God. Look how thoroughly he has blessed me. Or if not like that, then like most other extremely rich people, look at what my merits, my sweat and labors have won. He also wears the finest of linens, which would have struck you as humorous if you heard it from Jesus' lips. The very nicest underpants money can buy. And then also, feasting sumptuously every day, that last detail indicating more than meets the eye, that if he's feasting sumptuously every day, he's not allowing his servants the Sabbath. And if he's not allowing them the Sabbath, he's not participating either. Here is a man who has, in fact, become deeply estranged from God. Thus, we see that he is godless, selfish, and merciless. Laid outside his gate, by way of contrast, is a man named Lazarus. If this is, in fact, a parable, it's the only time Jesus names any of the characters in a parable. And Lazarus is a name that means, God is my consolation. Lazarus is daily carried by friends, we would presume, laid outside the rich man's gate. Yes, he's so wealthy, he has not just a large house and a large yard, but even a gate. At the end of the day, he is taken up by those same people and carried to wherever it is he resides at night. We find that Lazarus, by contrast, not clothed in purple robes, but clothed in sores, not feasting sumptuously every day, but rather longing to eat the leftovers that come from the rich man's table. That word longing is the same word used in the parable of the lost son who longs to feed on the pods that the pigs are eating, but can't. Thus we know that Lazarus was longing to dig through the trash of this rich man and eat what remained from his meals, but could not. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his wounds, which is quite stunning. Because while this rich man could easily afford to bring Lazarus in, care for him and provide whatever medical attention he needed, even hire him on and bring him in to gainful employment in his house. He did no such thing. But these dogs came and did what the rich man would not, licking the poor man's wounds. But even in this is a kind of shame, as dogs were thought to be very unclean, one step up from a pig. And thus we see the lowliness of Lazarus. What happens next? The great equalizer, death. The poor man, Lazarus, dies and is carried by the angels up into the bosom of Abraham. The English says the side of Abraham, more literally the bosom of Abraham. And while that might sound strange to us, what that really depicts is that Abraham is having a feast and reclining at table. And he is given to Lazarus the place at his bosom, the place of honor, that he might recline closest of all to Abraham in this seat of honor. From starving in the streets to feasting in heaven, 
in the blink of an eye. As chance would have it, the rich man also dies. We're told this detail, and is buried. That is, there was proper ceremony and right for him. A deep irony that even as the professional mourners were gathering, weeping and wailing and eulogizing this great man, while all that's happening on earth, he's in Hades and torment. Then, looking up, Just as Lazarus had looked up to him as he passed by, looking up now, the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus feasting. And he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But then the pious facade fades, and we see what's really there, what's still there. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in cold water and put it on my tongue that I might be relieved. That is to say that this wretched man, even in death, can't help but look at Lazarus and see nothing but a worthless member of the lower class, a servant in whatever life he might find him. Abraham treats him tenderly calls him child. Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus evil. Now he is being comforted here and you are in torment. Besides all this, there is a chasm so that even if he or anyone else did want to come to you and alleviate your suffering, they cannot, nor can you come to this place. It's too late. So the wicked man shifts gears and says, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus. Again, he can't see in Lazarus anything other than a menial servant and messenger boy. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Interesting, he would have been the sixth. And had he treated Lazarus as a brother, there would have been seven. Send him to my five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. To which Abraham said, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. That is all sufficient. The rich man disagrees. No, Abraham. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham says, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. And of course, these last words drip with irony, don't they? Because we know of our Lord Jesus raised from the dead and how even still he is rejected by the wicked. What then do we see? We see a kind of mystery, a kind of paradox. The rich man was rich in things, but poor in soul. Lazarus, on the other hand, was poor in things, but rich in soul. 
For example, as he's laid out beside the bed, we see him shaking no anger. As he's laid out beside the gate, we see him shaking no angry fist at God. We see him no, shaking no angry fist at man, not even the wicked man who deprived him of good that was easily his to give. We see that even after death, the great equalizer has come and the fortunes have been reversed. When Lazarus sees the rich man, there's no reviling, there's no mocking, there's no in your face. In fact, there's only the hint that if Lazarus himself could go dip his finger in the water, he would, if not for the chasm. There's nothing but peace, patience, waiting for the consolation of God in this dear Lazarus, a man who is poor in things but rich in soul. As is always the case, there's one more wrinkle. And that wrinkle is that if we would seek to be rich in soul, the very first step is to acknowledge our poverty, to acknowledge our indebtedness, our debts. Even just a cursory examination will reveal this. Do you fear love and trust in things other than God? Do you live as if he mattered most? Or do you live as if you mattered most? Have you prayed the way you should? Not just for yourself, but for others. Not just for your friends, but for your enemies. Have you built your whole life around hearing his word each and every Lord's Day? Do you come listening to that word more than you listen to social media or the news or any other delights? Is the word of God truly your delight? Do you honor father and mother and all other authorities the way you should? Or is there a rebelliousness deep within your heart, even a rebelliousness that you're all too happy to color with a kind of piety? Is there hatred within your heart, within your mind, towards your brother? Have you called him a fool or worse? Have you fantasized violence? What about adultery? Lust in one's eye. Lust in one's heart. Or spouses cheating one another and closing themselves off to one another. Who is free from stealing? Maybe stealing money, but what about stealing time? What about those greatest of all thieves that we collude with, robbing those around us of ourselves and of our services, that so-called smartphone? And how easy it is that our tongue turns in self-righteous gossip, slandering our brother before we even know we've done it. Not satisfied that we would be what we are, but insisting that everyone else be cut down, that we might appear greater. And that same spirit intruding into absolutely all aspects of our lives as we covet 
as we fail utterly to be satisfied with the countless blessings that God does bestow, always crying out of what He has not bestowed. No, we are all debtors. Debtors far beyond what we can pay. Thus, every morning and every evening, we pray, Our Father, we pray, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts that we might also forgive the debts of others. You see, if we would be rich in soul, the very first step is that we must realize that as Lazarus is laid out there physically with sores and filth, so is such is the condition of each one of our souls. We are poor beggars who cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy. And we are thus reminded that he who was rich became poor for our sake. How is it that he who has the heavens and the earth becomes poor? Precisely because he takes your list of debts, my list of debts, the list of debts of the entire world, and he takes them upon himself as his own. And there he labors on the cross in his passion until those debts are paid in full. He who was rich became poor that we who are poor might in him become rich. And that is what we are. Indeed, as you've come into his house today, you can recall that in the waters of holy baptism, he has clothed you not with fine purple linens that will perish, not with fancy underpants that will go the same way as the world, but rather has clothed you with Christ Jesus himself, wrapped you in the perfect robe of his righteousness, a robe that even though you cannot see right now, yet you can perceive by faith. And when that moment comes when you and I are called home through death, that robe will shine with a glorious splendor that will put to shame all the wealth and splendor of this world. And so too, we come to this table, not in self-righteousness, but as beggars, realizing that our Lord Jesus is not a stingy, merciless, rich man, but a benevolent and kind rich man who invites one and all to his table. And here, under the veil of common bread and wine, he pours out for us a feast greater than the earth has ever known his body and his blood given and shed for you, that his life might be your life, his righteousness, your righteousness, his future, your future. So he bids you come and recline with him this day. When we find ourselves longing for the things of the world, longing to be independent, independent, From whom exactly? From God? When we find ourselves thinking in this way, these ways, we might remind ourselves what it profits a man if he does indeed gain the whole world but loses his soul. 
and we might remind ourselves of what it is that Jesus sets before us as he wraps us and clothes us, as he feeds us, as he brings us into his house and with wine and oil and bandages begins to bind up and heal our wounds. In him we have something greater than the heavens and the earth. In him we have a savior, one to whom we may turn no matter what we have done, no matter what we have failed to do. And in him we might find a warm greeting, open arms, here in this world and there in the next. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.